Wrestling with Theology is a weekly Bible study that seeks to equip you to wrestle with the theologies that surround us in our everyday life. Through these studies, your faith in Christ will be strengthened through the Scriptures and the Lutheran Confessions. Join Pastor Minton for these next few minutes as he helps you get ready to wrestle with theology. Zarathustra is speaking again, so it must mean it's time for another edition of Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here to guide you as we go into the confessional corner this week to continue our discussion of the Lutheran stance on the relationship between church and state. If you did not hear last month, I encourage you to go back to listen to Podcast 73 and hear what is said in the first 29 paragraphs of this last article of the Augsburg Confession. So this week we pick up in paragraph 30. There is also a dispute about whether or not bishops or pastors have the right to introduce ceremonies in the church and to make laws about meats, holy days, and grades, that is, orders of ministers, and so on. Those who say that the bishops do have this right refer to the testimony of Christ in John 16, 12-13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. They also refer to the example of the apostles who commanded that Christians abstain from blood and from things strangled. They refer to the Sabbath day as having been changed into the Lord's day, contrary to the Decalogue as they understand it. In fact, they make more of the supposed change of the Sabbath day than any other example they can think of. They say that the church's authority is so great, it has even done away with one of the Ten Commandments. The question arises about the bishop's authority to introduce ceremonies and customs into the congregations under their care. There is ample evidence from the scriptures to support this position, especially Acts 15. The apostles and elders met in Jerusalem to introduce customs on the new Gentile converts. The problem with this authority, as with all authority, is that it is easily abused. They can take the words from John 16 and say, this is one of the things that Jesus could not tell his disciples in, but now it has been revealed. This idea of ongoing revelation easily gets things messed up with authority and questions of whether this should or should not be done. We continue in paragraph 34. But on this question, for our part, as we have shown earlier, we teach that bishops have no authority to decree anything against the gospel. The canonical laws teach the same thing. It is against Scripture to establish or require the observance of any traditions of, for the purpose of making satisfaction for sins or to merit grace and righteousness. When we try to merit justification by observing such things, we cause great harm to the glory of Christ's merit. It is quite clear that by such beliefs, traditions have almost multiplied to an infinite degree in the Church, while at the same time the doctrine about faith and the righteousness through faith has been suppressed. Gradually, more holy days were made, fast appointed, new ceremonies and services on our saints instituted. Those responsible for such things thought that by these works they were meriting grace. So the penitential canons increased. 
we still see some traces of this in the satisfactions. Bishops cannot go against the gospel in their decrees. Aside from not introducing something contrary to the gospel, it must also be done to promote good order in the congregation. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Melanchthon points out Rome's greatest crime against the gospel. They have introduced things into the church with the promise of the satisfaction for sins, but God does not give these promises. As Rome's power grew, they were able to add more and more ceremonies that are truly empty of merit, but are designed to give merit for those who do them. Paragraph 39. Those who establish such traditions are acting contrary to God's command when they locate sin in foods, days, and similar things. They burden the church with bondage to the law, as if there needs to be something similar to the services commanded in Leviticus chapters 1-7 through in order to merit justification. They say that Christ has committed the arrangement of such services to the apostles and bishops. They have written about the law of Moses in such a way that the popes have been misled to some degree. This is how they have burdened the church, by making it a mortal sin, even if nobody else is offended, to do manual labor on holy days, or to skip the canonical hours, or that certain foods dirty the conscience, or that fasting is a work that appeases God. Or they say that in a reserved case, sin can only be forgiven by the person who reserved the case, even though canon law speaks only of reserving the ecclesiastical penalty, not the guilt. The distinctions of meats because some food is inherently sinful is completely against the gospel. Read Acts chapter 10 verses 9 through 16. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the kosher food laws are fulfilled. They no longer need to be followed. So also, we go into Romans chapter 14 verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe it, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. We cannot burden the conscience of people by saying that one way is the absolute only way to do things. Therefore, we have such a variety in churches today, even in Missouri Synod, for worship services. We continue on with paragraphs 42 to 52. Who has given the bishops the right to lay these traditions on the church by which they snare consciences? In Acts 15.10, Peter forbids us from putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.10 that the authority given to him was for edification, not for destruction. Why do the adversaries increase sins with their traditions? There are clear testimonies that forbid creating traditions in such a way as to suggest that they merit grace or are necessary to salvation. Paul says in Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And later, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Colossians 2, 20-23. Also in Titus 1, 14, he openly forbids traditions with these words, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and co the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In Matthew 15, 14, Christ says of those who require traditions, let them alone, 
They are blind guides. In verse 13, he rejects such services. Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. If bishops have the right to burden churches with infinite traditions and to snare consciences, why does Scripture so often forbid making and listening to traditions? Why does it call them teachings of demons? 1 Timothy 4.1 Did the Holy Spirit warn of these things in vain? Therefore, ordinances instituted as though they are necessary or with the view that they merit grace are contrary to the gospel. Therefore, it follows that it is not lawful for any bishop to institute and require such services. It is necessary that the doctrine of Christian freedom be preserved in the churches. In other words, the bondage of the law is not necessary in order to be justified. As it is written in the epistle to the Galatians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is necessary for the chief article of the gospel to be preserved, namely that we obtain grace freely by faith in Christ and not by certain observances or acts of worship devised by people. Even if the bishops have the authority to introduce traditions, it should be done for edification, 2 Corinthians 13.10, so that a yoke is not placed upon consciences, Acts 15.10. All these traditions should be free to be accepted or rejected, as they quoted from Paul in Colossians and Titus. Melanchthon continues, boiling it down to the Sunday morning rituals. Paragraphs 53 to 56. What then are we to think of the Sunday rites and similar things in God's house? We answer that it is lawful for bishops or pastors to make ordinances so that things will be done orderly in the church, but not to teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction for sins. Consciences are not bound to regard them as necessary services and to think that it is a sin to break them without offense to others. So in 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul concludes that women should cover their heads in the congregation, and in 1 Corinthians 14.30, that interpreters be heard in order in the church, and so on. It is proper that the churches keep such ordinances for the sake of love and tranquility, to avoid giving offense to one another, so that all things be done in the churches in order and without confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.40, compare Philippians 2.14. It is proper to keep such ordinances just so long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary to salvation or to regard it as sin if they are changed without offending others. For instance, no one will say that a woman sins who goes out in public with her hair uncovered, as long as no offense is given. Traditions should be done for good order and for the sake of tranquility. Many of these traditions are culturally based. We don't have the same understanding and perception of women whose head is uncovered. In Corinth and much of the Roman Empire, prostitutes would go around with their heads uncovered. Respectable women had their head covered when they were out in public. This particular tradition was taken over and abused by Muhammad and his followers. All Muslim women are required to wear a hijab when they are anywhere outside their father's or husband's house. Muhammad cited the temptation to lust over a woman when her face is uncovered. However, different Muslim sects and cultures have different standards of how much needs to be covered. This is a burden on consciences. And not done for good order and the sake of tranquility anymore. It is done for control. And that is not the role of the bishop to lord and control over the congregation. He continues in paragraphs 57 to 60. This kind of ordinance in the church is observing the Lord's Day, Easter, Pentecost, and similar holy days and rites. 
It is a great error for anyone to think that it is by the authority of the church that we observe the Lord's Day as something necessary instead of the Sabbath day. Scripture itself has abolished the Sabbath day, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It teaches that since the gospel has been revealed, all the ceremonies of Moses can be omitted. Yet, because it was necessary to appoint a certain day for the people to know when they ought to come together, it appears that the church designated the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10, for this purpose. This day seems to have been chosen all the more for this additional region, so people might have an example of Christian freedom and might know that keeping neither the Sabbath nor any other day is necessary. Congregations are free to choose which holy days and festivals they will celebrate. I'm not sure anyone would skip Easter since it is the center of our faith. Many Reformed groups will only have a Christmas service if Christmas falls on Sunday. It wasn't too many years ago, the last time Christmas fell on a Sunday, that many of the Reformed and non-denominational churches actually canceled their services because Christmas is family. The Sunday traditions are quite open for each congregation. There is no required time for service to begin or for a length of the service. No one can tell the congregation which lectionary they must use or that they must use any lectionary. These things are for the congregation to decide for itself, again, for the sake of good order and the sake of tranquility. Now we move back into the debates with the papist and the changing of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Paragraph 61 to 64. There are monstrous debates about changing the law, ceremonies of the new law, and changing the Sabbath day. They have all sprung from the false belief that in the church there must be something similar to the services set forth in Leviticus 1-7, through and that Christ had commissioned the apostles and bishops to come up with new ceremonies necessary to salvation. These errors crept into the church when the righteousness that comes through faith was not taught clearly enough. Some debate whether or not keeping the Lord's Day is not a divine right, but similar to it. They prescribe the extent to which it is lawful to work on holy days. What else are such disputes except traps for the conscience? Even when they try to modify the traditions, no one will understand the modifications as long as the opinion remains that these traditions are necessary and must remain. There, the righteousness of faith and Christian freedom is not known. The monstrous debates over what ceremonies are required have gone on for centuries. They are monstrous because the popes had enforced many of their demands with military force. Many of the enforced rituals were to make the church look like Leviticus. However, Jesus fulfilled the Levitical law in his life, death, and resurrection. Worship need not look like that. There are no more services necessary for salvation because Jesus has done it all. Melanchthon continues with examples of things that have been prescribed in the past that are no longer followed in paragraphs 65 to 68. In Acts 15.20, the apostles commanded to abstain from blood. Who observes this now? Those who choose to eat blood do not sin, for not even the apostles themselves wanted to burden consciences with bondage to tradition. They forbid the eating of the blood for a time to avoid giving offense. For in this decree we must always keep in mind what the aim of the gospel is. Scarcely any canon laws are kept with exactness. From day to day many go out of use, even among those who are the most zealous advocates of tradition. In order to treat the conscience properly, we must realize that canon laws are to be kept without regarding them as necessary, 
No harm is done to the conscience, even though traditions may go out of use. At the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, the apostles forbid the eating of blood. This was only done for a time so that the Jewish Christians would not be offended by the Gentile brothers and sisters. By the Reformation, no one kept this decree. Every decree and canon law should have its focus on the proclamation of the gospel and removing any obstacle that stands in the way of that goal and its proper proclamation. We move on into paragraphs 69 to 75. The bishops might easily retain the legitimate obedience of the people if they would not insist upon the observance of traditions that cannot be kept with a good conscience. Instead, they command celibacy and accept no preachers unless they swear that they will not teach the gospel's pure doctrine. The churches are not asking the bishops to restore concord at the expense of their honor, even though it would be proper for good pastors to do this. They ask only that the bishops release unjust burdens that are new and have been received contrary to the custom of the universal church. It may be that in the beginning there were plausible reasons for some of these ordinances, but they are not adapted to later times. It is also clear that some were adopted through erroneous ideas. Therefore, it would be in keeping with the Pope's mercy to change them now. Such a modification does not shake the Church's unity. Many human traditions have been changed over time, as the canons themselves show. But if it is impossible for the adversaries to change those traditions, which they say is sinful to change, we must follow the apostolic rule, which commands us to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 Many people speak about bound consciences. Consciences are bound when laws are required to be kept in order to achieve or retain salvation. This was the biggest problem with the laity in the Reformation. Their consciences were bound almost to the point of being seared through Rome's tyranny. The Reformers didn't demand the tyrant bishops to be deposed. They simply wanted the unjust burdens lifted from consciences. It would be proper for good pastors to do this, Melanchthon says. This change would not break the church apart. In fact, it might lead to a greater unity and a genuine obedience to the bishops as the leaders of the church. Now we move into the final paragraph of this article, paragraphs 76 to 78. In 1 Peter 5.3, Peter forbids bishops to be lords and rule over the churches. It is not our intention to take oversight away from the bishops. We ask only this one thing, that they allow the gospel to be taught purely and that they relax a few observances that they claim it is sinful to change. If they will not give anything up, it is for them to decide how they will give an account to God for causing schism by their stubbornness. As Melanchthon closes this article on church and state, he goes back to Rome's greatest authority, St. Peter. Peter forbids bishops from being lords. He had been involved with enough arguments over his place among the disciples and Jesus' condemnation of such conversations to know that there should be no hierarchy and no lordship. As a final statement, Melanchthon repeats the thesis for the entire Augsburg Confession. We ask only one thing, that they allow the gospel to be taught purely and that they relax a few observances that they claim it is sinful to change. The entire Lutheran Reformation hung on this one request. We have finally made it to the end of the Augsburg Confession. And now we look at the short conclusion that is really just summarizing Articles 21 through 28, but 
is here placed because, well, there was already a conclusion after Article 20. So we have a distinction between the things that should be taught and then the various and sundry abuses that need to be corrected. So the conclusion of the Augsburg Confession. These are the chief articles that seem to be in controversy. We could have mentioned more abuses, but here we have set forth only the chief points in order to avoid making this confession too long. From these chief points, the rest may be easily judged. There have been, for example, great complaints about indulgences, pilgrimages, and the abuse of excommunication. Our parishes have been troubled in many ways by dealers and indulgences. There were endless arguments between the pastors and the monks about who has the right in parishes to hear confessions, do funerals, give sermons on extraordinary occasions, and innumerable other things. We have passed over such things so that the chief points in this matter, briefly set forth, might be more easily understood. Nothing has been said or brought up for the rebuke of anyone. We have mentioned only those things we thought it was necessary to talk about so that it would be understood that in doctrine and ceremonies we have received nothing contrary to Scripture or the Church Universal. It is clear that we have been very careful to make sure no new ungodly doctrine creeps into our churches. We present these articles in accordance with your Imperial Majesty's edict in order to show our confession and let people see a summary of our teacher's doctrine. If there is anything that anyone might desire in this confession, we are ready, God willing, to present more thorough information according to the Scriptures. Signed, Your Imperial Majesty's Faithful Subject, John, Duke of Saxony, Elector, George, Margrave of Brandenburg, Ernest, Duke of Lundberg, Philip, Landgrave of Hesse, John Frederick, Duke of Saxony, Francis, Duke of Lundberg, Wolfgang, Prince of Anhalt, the Senate and Magistracy of Nuremberg, and the Senate of Rutlingen. As the closing of the argument, Melanchthon wraps up Articles 22 through 28 as the controversial articles. Many more could have been listed, but these are the most important. It ends with the signatures of some of the greatest political powers in the Holy Roman Empire, including one of the electors of the emperor. There's weight in this confession because of these signatures. And this is why we have this great work in our confessions, to read through and to learn, so that we may further understand what it means to truly be a descendant of the Lutheran Reformation. That is the end of the Augsburg Confession. Next time we will go into the confutation as the Augsburg Confession was read at one time. The papal theologians got together and submitted a rebuttal that was read a couple of months later so that they could refute all the things that the Lutherans had said. I may spend a couple of episodes on the confutation just to look at what they say and what is agreement in between Roman Wittenberg and what is stark difference and some of the subtle wording that is used to confuse which one's which. But that's next time. Until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments about what you have heard on Wrestling With Theology, send an email to wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you have subscribed so it will show up automatically on your podcast app. Please also share the podcast so that more may be equipped to wrestle with theology.